guys, it's Sabby Sabs, and I have a special guest with me today. Her name is Allie Dalsimer. She is an equity advocate, and she's running for Congress for Virginia's 11th District. Hi, Allie. Hi, Sabby. Thank you so much for inviting me to your show. I'm super excited to be here. Thanks so much for coming. So, Ali, before we dive into your political platform, can you tell everybody just a little bit about your background? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, I grew up in a family of um, it's a very diverse, loving, you know, dysfunctional family, like so many other people. Um, I grew up though uh, with my parents being very socially and politically active. Um, and always volunteering. And I started volunteering when I was in high school, you know, church and the kids' school and church, I mean, uh, sports teams and um, in the local community. And, and so that, that sense of, of, of giving back was always a part of, of who I was growing up. Um, I did spend 30 years as an environmental professional. I started at a nonprofit foundation in 1990 um, and ended as the natural resources program manager at the Department of Defense overseeing that program from the headquarters level um, until my position was eliminated by the Trump administration. <laughs> Um, which, you know, is one of the reasons I think that I'm sitting here now. Uh, I did start my own business in January of 2020, um, and it went, it went really well for a couple months, and then COVID hit, and like so many other small businesses, especially fledgling ones, um, it didn't survive. So um, I found myself uh, unemployed. Um, on a personal note, I am a single mother of two amazing kids. I have a daughter in high school and a son in college. And actually, and we can talk about this later, my son is the one who wanted me to run for Congress. He is currently my campaign manager and is going to be taking a gap year next year so that he can work full time on the campaign, which, um, which is uh, super, super exciting. Um, I'm also a widow. Um, I did go through a long-term illness with my husband, um, which, you know, put me right in the middle of kind of the best and the worst of our healthcare system, right? Um, and it's probably one of the reasons that single-payer universal healthcare is also an integral part of my platform because, um, you know, I saw very close up how a profit motive can really um, skew care. It can pervert care and uh, really should, it, profit has no place in, but I'm, I'm getting ahead. Uh, but profit, it shouldn't be a part of, of, uh, of healthcare. And um, so that's who I am. I have a rescue cat. I, I'm just a, a regular suburban mom who's a lot like a lot of other people um, although different from others. Um, and I think that um, there's nothing special about me and I'm just doing this because I felt compelled. Awesome, so that brings me into my you know, first question for you, which is why did you decide to run for Congress? Right, excellent, yes. So um, the, the, the first thing was watching the Trump administration systematically undermine and undo the environmental protections that I literally had spent my life trying to um, uh, 
strengthen and implement um, like the Endangered Species Act and the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, not to mention, you know, clean air standards and clean water standards. And, and you know, he had this whole list of his hundred things that he wanted to do. And they were, a number of them were all environmentally um, damaging. And that was um, really frustrating and angered me. Um, and then seeing what happened in 2020 with everything that was going on with the Black Lives Matter movement and COVID and the huge social and economic disparities that we saw and um, you know, just struggling with that so much and trying to find an outlet, right? So I was thinking, what do I wanna do? Do I wanna write a book? Do I wanna start another business? Do I wanna do whatever? I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was struggling with that. Um, um, and of course I did what everybody does. I took to Facebook and started talking to like-minded people and you know, railing against the system. And a friend of mine from high school said, you know, um, you really need to read Howard Zinn's um, A People's History of the United States. Mm -hmm. And so I did. I don't know if you've read that book. Mm -hmm. it, it changed my life. It literally changed my life. I was like, oh my God, how can I go through primary school, secondary school, college, graduate school, and not know, be so ignorant of the facts of our history, right? And it's because we're not taught. And I, that just launched me on this learning journey. And I started reading all these books, you know, Ijeomo Luo, um, Ibram X. Kendi, W.B. Du Bois, D.L. Hughley, you know, on and on. And then I finished with P Patricia Kahn Colors book. And I was like, oh my God, you know, all of this, just points to the fact that the inequities and systemic issues in our society are all based on economics. They're all based on economics. And, and I, you know, I sort of knew that because of women, right? My mom grew up as a single mom making, you know, 57 cents on the dollar at the time that her male counterparts made. And we struggled as a, you know, as a, as a, as a family unit, but, um, you know, I never really extrapolated that to the larger issue, right? So I started reading economists. I started reading um, Malcolm Gladwell and um, Stephen Levitt and Tom Frank and Tim Hartford and whatever. Anyway, so all these things were building and it was growing and we were watching the nightly news with everything going on with COVID and the final straw, here's what caused me to run for Congress, right? And I've talked about this, but I'm watching the local news and the reporter comes on and says that my representative, Jerry Connolly in Virginia's 11th year, has held up the HEROES Act for 48 hours so that he can add a $3 billion rider to the HEROES Act to um, fund uh, military industrial complex contractors. And that money um, ended up going to, you know, corporate headquarters and executive bonuses and whatever. And, and we found out later that, you know, 75% of that money ended up being corporate pork. But in the moment, in the moment, that same newscast had just shown people waiting in line because they'd, they'd lost their jobs, they'd lost their healthcare because their healthcare was tied to their jobs and all this and I'm like, how can someone do this to people in this district and in this nation when people are suffering? How can you hold it up for a moment, let alone two whole days? And it was the final, the final straw. And, um, you know, I looked at my son and, and he had said to me, he was, so I, 
my son was the one who actually got me to run. We were watching Knock Down the House. Do you know Knock Down the House? With nope. Yeah. So, and he had said to me something that kind of stuck with me. And he said, if Corey Bush can do it, you can do it, right? Because Corey Bush faced such adversity. She'd been homeless. I know, I'm sure you know her story. She'd been homeless. She'd been a single mom. I mean, she just faced such adversity. And he'd been encouraging me to run this whole time. And, and of course, I'd been engaging in this learning journey. And, and But watching that, I was like, I'm done. That's it. I'm in. And um, so that was, that's, that's kind of a, the long story of how I came to run. Awesome. So I know that you're really passionate about environmental issues. Um, think when you think about like Virginia, how would you say that climate change has impacted Virginia? Right. So that's a good question. Um, and um, Virginia has been hit in the same way that a lot of the parts of the country have been hit in terms of um, uh, hotter summers, more extreme temperatures, more storms, um, coastal area surges and floods and whatever. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of things, but the, the impacts to the state, you know, we have um, aquatic and terrestrial farming here, right? We've got oysters and crabs and we've got farmlands and whatever. And when you have altered precipitation when you have altered um, temperature and um, sunlight cycles, and um, that that can really, really impact your ability to productively farm. So it, there, there's impacts from that, and from a natural resources perspective, you know, we have more pests, right? So we have um, more mosquitoes because. And, and more wasps. We're not getting those hard freezes that kill those things, right? And that's important because, you know, we talk about the web of life and everything being interconnected because if you have more mosquitoes, mosquitoes are a primary disease vector for Zika and N1H1 and uh, arboviruses and stuff like that, right? So you have more disease vectors. And then you also have the fact you've got plant nutrient cycles where, um, you know, you've got birds or bats or butterflies that are migrating through and they're expecting some flowering plant or whatever to be available as a food source or a shelter source. And those aren't there anymore. So you have huge impacts. And because Virginia has coastal areas, we have a lot of impacts from that. And then we've got the mountains where we've got a major flyway for hawks and, and, and other migrating, migrating birds. And so there's a lot of impacts that um, are similar um, to other states, although you know, the ones that are specific to Virginia um, have to do with our flora and fauna. But what's really cool about Virginia is our state legislature is actually super progressive on the House side. And so we have, um, I don't know if you know Sam Rasool and um, Elizabeth Guzman who have introduced the Virginia Green New Deal Act. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's super cool. So the Virginia Green New Deal Act, um, for those who don't know, um, is this is this big plan to um, implement the Green New Deal resolution, right? Because you have to, you've got this big resolution that everybody signs and it says, we're going to do great things. But unless you're actually doing something, if you're actually creating something, um, then it's, it's kind of all just talk. So um, the plan calls for um, job training and um, um, uh, uh, huge infrastructure and um, all kinds of things. Let me look at my notes really quickly uh, mm -hmm. here. So yeah, energy efficiency, state agriculture, prioritizing affordable and clean housing. And it calls for 100% renewables by 2036, right? And so that's really awesome. And Virginia also has the uh, Virginia Clean Economy Act, which takes a more incremental approach. And it deals with um, 
you know, it deals with regional impacts and um, some training and healthcare and whatever, but it, it calls for 100% renewables by 2050. That's 30 years. I mean, we've already missed the window for reversing climate change. That's gone. We cannot, we are not able to reverse climate change. What we can do now is stop the progression or at least slow the progression, right? Yep. And so the difference between 100% renewable by 2036 and, and 2050, that's, that's huge. That's twice as long, right? So for some reason, which we'll talk about, Virginia chose to pursue the Clean Economy Act. And that's because of the disproportionate influence. This goes back to, again, why I'm running, right? The disproportionate influence that industry groups have, right? So in Virginia, Dominion Energy has huge influence. They give a lot of money. So Dominion Energy is a public utility that is publicly subsidized and yet makes huge profits and gives corporate political donations. So wrap your brain around that. I don't know. I'm not sure how that works. But they've given they've given money to my representative, but they give huge amounts of money to um, to state legislators. For example, the um, the chair of the uh, of the, uh, the Senate in in the in the state is a guy named Dick Staslaw, um, who who by the way was elected in 1980. That was 41 years ago. I'm just saying. Anyway, he's taken um, about half a million dollars from Virginia Energy. And so the state keeps, the, the House side keeps putting up these great, incredible, like pro-environment things. And then they all die in the Senate side. Um, and you end up coming out with, you know, I think they passed a couple of the EV and some emission stuff, but they, they go for things like the Clean Economy Act, which is this, you know, incremental half measure thing. And, and I'm, you know, half is better than none, right? That's great. But it's not enough. We are really legitimately facing a climate crisis. And when you're looking at racial issues, economic issues, health issues, whatever, they are all tied to climate change. Everything is tied to climate change. It's an overarching, you know, they talk about um, an existential threat. And I hate when they talk about existential threat because nobody knows what the heck an existential threat is. My daughter looked at me and she was like, what's an existential threat? You know, it's like, oh, is that Jean-Paul Sartre or something? No, it's a threat to our existence. They should simply say climate change is life and death, and we need to treat it like that. It's an emergency. So I hate when they use big words for simple ideas. It's not complicated. You know, climate change is real. It affects everything, and it's it's biting us in the butt now, and we need to deal with it. So that was probably more than you wanted. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, agreed. It's, it's very uh, important for people to hear that because oftentimes I hear people say that climate change is an issue that they really need to be focused on, but you just laid it out there how it affects everything. It's all connected. Um, so I know one of the issues that you had on your platform was education reform. Um, living in Virginia, I do remember Hampton Road schools was a big issue. Um, didn't go to Hampton Road schools, but I remember people talked about that, that it, they were prop it was problematic or underfunded. And so from your experience, what kind of educational reforms do you think are needed in Virginia? I think, well, I think there's a whole suite of reforms we could do. I think first and foremost, we need to train our teachers better. We need to pay them better, right? And we must decouple, because I don't even know how this came about, 
we must decouple funding schools based on residential taxes. Like really? So the people who have the biggest, fanciest houses get the biggest, fanciest schools because they're paying the most taxes. So what you're saying is that the people who need the highest quality education are most in need of a high quality education because they're disadvantaged in other areas are the least likely to get it. It's the most stupid backward policy ever, right? It's like, well, I don't need to give another example. It just is. And so I think we need to absolutely not do that. We need to find another way. And there are plenty of other options and we can talk about those to fund the schools. Um, when, so if you've looked at my platform, you know that for me, early childhood education and pre-K, universal, like universal pre-K, free pre-K is, is crucial, right? Um, and that's because I know a lot of progressives talk about, we must have free college. Great. College is irrelevant if you can't graduate high school. That's just the reality, right? Like right now, the single biggest predictor of whether a kid ends up in college or jail is their zip code between the ages of three and eight. That's so wrong. That's just on the face wrong. Because what you're doing is you're saying, if you're an economically disadvantaged kid, we are going to set you up for failure. And then we're going to pay for you to be in jail. It's like, well, why don't we use that money instead to set you up for success, right? So one of the things we could do Currently, if you go to Head Start, Head Start is for um, um, free and discounted uh, preschool education if you're able to get into a program, if you have a program in your area. Um, the average um, preschool, uh, not preschool, the average Head Start teacher is a high school graduate who earns between seventeen dollars and $20,000 a year. This is not a qualified educator. It's just not. It's somebody who couldn't find a job doing something else. Right. And what you're doing is you're setting up those teachers for failure because they are unable to succeed at their jobs because they do not have the tools or the training or the financial incentives to 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 be successful. And they are in turn underserving the, the kids who need them the most. So we need high quality universal pre-K. We need to pay teachers. I personally think all teachers should have master's degrees. Um, my son went to the public school here. He was uh, able, he, he, he actually was invited to go to the magnet school, you know, for the advanced, you know, for the smart kids, whatever. Um, super duper. He was there until Thanksgiving, hated it and left, right? Because it was, it's a, it's a super, um, let's just say it, it was an environment where he didn't enjoy himself. It wasn't fun. And school needs to be fun. School should be fun first and foremost. If it's not fun, nobody's going to want to try. Um, but the thing was, like, talking with that, those teachers all had master's degrees. And their plans and how they structured things was just so amazingly different from what you get in the public schools where some kids are super, I mean, some teachers are, are, you know, they've got either lots of experience or they've had higher education and some, you know, don't. It's, it's hit or miss and it depends where you go to school and what you do. And that gets back to the equity issue we were talking about a minute ago. Um, and I think that if everybody had a high quality pre-K experience, it really would, the rising tide would lift all ships and all of our kids would benefit and we would end up 20 years from now with a very different looking population and workforce and criminal justice system and everything would be different. Agreed. 
Yeah, I know um, a lot of people don't know this, but the reason why I'm in Massachusetts and the reason why Massachusetts or one of the reasons why we have the number one public school system in the country is because here, most of the teachers have master's degrees. And I know that to teach in Boston, you can get a teaching job with just a bachelor's, but most people don't. If you do, you have to get your master's within those first five years. It, it really does make a big difference. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, your teacher pay is also really good. Yep. So, and, um, you know, it, it makes a difference because you need to train people to be qualified and then you need to pay them as the qualified professionals that they are. Exactly. Now, I know um, another issue that's on your platform is a livable wage. Mm -hmm. So we all saw like the $15 minimum wage didn't pass in the Senate. Huge disappointment. But then I started thinking about this, like after talking to Lee as well in Virginia, especially Northern Virginia, yeah. I do remember it being quite expensive. In, in your opinion, do you believe that a $15 minimum wage is enough for people to live off of in Northern Virginia? No, I did the math, right? So I did the math, $15. So first of all, Northern Virginia is uh, about 100, depending where you are, 125 to 150% more expensive to live in than the rest of Virginia. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's just a flat out fact, right? Um, at $15 an hour, you're gonna make uh, $2,400 a month, which is gonna put you in the 12% uh, tax bracket, which is gonna leave you $2,100 a month. Okay, so we got $2,100 a month, um, theoretically as a living wage. And by that, for me, what I mean is you work eight hours uh, a day, five days a week, and you're comfortable. Um, the average rent, I looked it up yesterday, the average rent um, in my district, it ranges depending on where you are in the district, but for your average single bedroom garden apartment, you're going to pay somewhere between uh, $1,500 and $1,800 a month. So let's just call it for easy math, $1,600. So you're in a garden apartment, average middle class area, that leaves you $500 a month. The average person spends between $150 and $300 a month on food, depending on what you eat, how much you eat, whatever. Um, then let's say you have a car payment, that's 250, or you take public transportation and that runs you 100 to 150 a month. Around here, Metro is very expensive. A single trip into DC from my Metro station will cost you, um, I think it's 650. So it's not cheap. Um, and then you wanna do things like, I don't know, buy toothpaste, right? Or <laughs> clothes, maybe you need a new pair of shoes, or maybe you want to just eat out one night a week, right? That's 15 bucks if you go for your, and, and so you're already in the negative. If you do that math, you're all, you've already spent more than your $500 that you have left in discretionary spending. You, it's gone. You don't have that. And here's the thing. What if you're not a single person? What if you're a single mom raising a kid or two kids? So no, $15 a minimum wage is not sufficient here. But here's the thing that really annoys the, the heck out of me, right? The government has all kinds of formulas for wage disparities and cost of living disparities around the country. It's called COLA, cost of living allowance, and they give it to their employees. Or if you're traveling, because I worked in the federal system for 22 years, right? So if you're traveling and you go to St. Louis or you go to Miami or you go to LA or you go to New York or whatever, the government says the average cost of a hotel room is X and the average cost of meals is Y. And you can get X and Y as your per diem, right? So they already know. 
that it costs different amounts to live in different areas of the country. So why not peg whatever the minimum wage is to the cost of living in a particular area? I get that it's not a panacea because sometimes people work in one place and live in a different place or whatever, but that's gonna be a small percentage. The vast majority of us basically live and work in the same general area. So why not do something like that and come up with a true living wage? It's not complicated. It just requires a little effort. Agreed. No, I'm so glad you did the math on that because a lot of people, they don't, you have to break it down just like you did for people because in their mind, they're thinking, oh, well, that's enough to pay rent. And, but they forget about everything else. They forget about utilities, uh, groceries, car payment, car insurance. Um, so they just don't, like you said, you're already in the negative. Mm -hmm. So another uh, thing on your platform is criminal justice reform. So I did see that approximately 67,000 people were incarcerated in Virginia in 2018, which mm -hmm. is insane amount, uh, in my opinion. Um, when thinking about criminal justice reform, what are some of the things that you feel should be implemented to improve this? First, it's more now, just to let you know. It's higher now. Um, I think the very first thing that we can do that would make a huge, huge difference, and you talked with Lee, so you know that Virginia has now legalized marijuana, right? Mm -hmm. The bill that he put in called for expunging prison sentences. And the Senate side, with Dick Saslaw as the chair, and remember, prison is a for-profit, corporate-driven venture, mm -hmm. took that part out. I think the very first thing that we could do would be to expunge uh, and release all prisoners who are in jail for nonviolent minor, minor drug offenses. That's 21,000 people. Now, regardless of the fact that this is going to make a huge difference in their lives, in the lives of their families, in the lives of their children, if they have them, it will allow them to become productive members of society, whatever. I differ from a lot of people because for me, it's all common sense, right? Like it's not just the right thing to do. It's fiscally the right move, right? I looked it up. It costs $80 a day to keep a person in prison in Virginia. Now, if you're caught with a little bit of marijuana, you are automatically getting a $500 fine and 30 days in jail. Okay, so you're looking at 30 days in jail times, I actually did the math, you look at 30 days in jail times, um, where did I put that? Times um, $80, $80 uh, times 30 works out to $4.8 million. $4.8 million. Why? Right. So you got five million dollars there. I tried to find statistics for drug enforcement because, frankly, we spend a lot more on drug enforcement even than incarceration. I couldn't find anything for Virginia, but across the U.S., every year we spend taxpayers have to fund for marijuana enforcement only. Twenty billion dollars, 20 billion with a B dollars. What if we put that money in education in early Head Start programs, for example, my God, right? Because if you have kids who are engaged in school and who are set up for success, and then you're not going to criminalize them for recreational marijuana use, which frankly is less harmful than alcohol use, which is legal, um, 
you know, what, what could we do? We could do so much. And I think that that would be the very first minimal thing we can do. Thanks to Lee and other folks, Virginia has abolished the death penalty. That would have been my other thing. For me, I think murder is wrong. And if murder is wrong, then murder is wrong, right? It's like, it's, it's kind of a common sense issue. And I think that that would be um, a first bold, significant move. Other things that can be done are going to require more work because they're more entrenched and they're more systemically um, locked in. Um, so I, I think that if we could do that, that would start the floodgate and people would see that it actually makes sense not to have people in jail. Because here's the thing, right? We talked about this. Prison is, incarceration should be a public service. You should incarcerate people who are homicidal, who are rapists who are violent and who are a danger to society, they need to be incarcerated, right? There is no way that someone who has murdered children through whatever needs to be out in society with our children, for example. Um, and rehabilitation is a whole nother thing that, that you know, we can talk about, but they need to, they need to be, there, there, there does need to be that. But what about all the other people? Mm -hmm they don't need to be there but they're there because there is a profit motive prisons make a profit based on the number of people they have incarcerated and so it's just like healthcare, it's just like the environment it's just like education if you have a profit motive it perverts incentives it's just like our legislators right our congress people who get money from corporations they are literally serving those corporate interests because they make their money albeit not a technical personal profit, although there's some of that too, um, and it perverts incentives. So I think we need to abolish for-profit prisons. I think we need to release nonviolent uh, drug offenders. And I think we need to take a hard look at um, who really needs to be in jail because I think it's a small fraction of the people who actually are in jail. Agreed. And I know like some of the people that are in prison are basically there because they can't afford bail. Oh yeah. That's another thing. We have to get rid of, uh, we have to get rid of cash bail. That's just ridiculous. You know, there was a kid, oh my God, I, I read about it so long ago and I apologize. I don't remember his name and I feel horrible about that, but he was incarcerated um, because he was suspected of stealing a backpack in New York and he went to jail because he couldn't, he couldn't afford the, however much it was bail. I don't remember. It was like $200. It wasn't much. And he couldn't afford the bail and he ended up incarcerated and his life was just ruined, mm -hmm. ruined. And they finally released him. Oh, it turns out he didn't steal the backpack. Oh, sorry. He committed suicide. Yep. It was, it, it was devastating. And there's no reason that rich people should be able to get out of jail while pe poor people can't. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So yeah, absolutely. That needs to be nationally banned. Yeah, I definitely agree. All right, Allie, I have one more question for you. How can people support your campaign? Oh, thank you for asking that. We need all the help we can get. We are a fledgling campaign going up a long-term incumbent. Our biggest thing is name recognition. So go to our website, Allie for Congress, A-L-L-Y-F-O-R com, and if you can volunteer if you've got some time please sign up to volunteer we have all different levels of volunteers so you can kind of pick your commitment and if you can support us financially if you've got five dollars 
$50. If you're super wealthy, you can fork out the full 2,800 bucks. We're all for it. If you have $1 a month that you could share, but make it recurring, that would actually help us a lot. $1 may not seem like a lot, but if you multiply that by a thousand people, that's a lot of money. Um, so please, um, please, please help if you can go to our Twitter, uh, which is Ally for Congress with the number four at A-L-L-Y, the number four. So I've got, I've got like, um, uh, 1100 followers now, 1130 followers. And my, my, my opponent for his campaign website has like 3000 followers. And I would like to have as many followers as he has by the time we're a year out, um, from the, from the election, because I think that would totally freak him out. He's already on the defense, right? He's already taking things that I've talked about and suddenly putting them out as priorities, even though in his 12 years, he's never mentioned it. He lashed out at my son for asking a question about how he can support um, holding Amazon accountable while taking um, money from their pack and um, made this comment about, I'm only two months into my term. Yeah, it's his seventh term. Um, so he's already scared and people, when they hear about our campaign are really supportive. So we just need to get the word out. We need volunteers. We need money. We need your love and support. Awesome. All right, everyone. I'll be sure to put all of Allie's links in the description below. Allie, thanks so much for coming. Oh, Savvy, thank you for this opportunity and thank you for reaching out. I've really enjoyed it. And I really appreciate this, the, the opportunity to reach your, your viewers. So thank you. Thanks for listening. You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabby Sab's channel on YouTube.